Well, in, in this hour, I'd like to turn to the subject of um, leadership in worship. Uh, as a historian, I, I suppose one of the things that particularly strikes me as I look at the uh, church in our time is the sense that there is absolutely nothing settled and certain and that everything is up for grabs. Um, and um, at times that's extremely frustrating that, that you have to sort of go back to square one to justify and prove absolutely everything the church has ever done uh, to this generation. It, sometimes you feel like you have to reinvent the wheel over and over and over again. Um, on the other hand, it does force us to uh, face with great seriousness the question, do we really have a reason for the things we're doing? Because we as Protestants are committed to the notion that uh, tradition is not authoritative amongst us. Uh, we are uh, committed to the notion that the church needs always to be reforming. Not only is it reformed, but it needs to be reforming. And therefore we have to be open to the notion that some of the things we have done and believed are wrong and need to be changed. Uh, but we, we, at least I feel sometimes, that we're under an avalanche of criticism, as if absolutely everything that uh, we have done in the past uh, is wrong. And uh, one of the issues uh, where that uh, comes to play, we've looked at the Sabbath just very briefly, but uh, even the issue of ministerial leadership in the church, what does it mean, what does it amount to, how should it function, is also up for grabs today. And um, the, the way it goes, it seems to me, is something like this. Uh, the Reformation was a good thing, but it didn't go far enough. Because the medieval church was a church dominated by priests. And although the Reformation... Um, theoretically rejected the notion that the priest stands between man and God and that the priest is a necessary mediator between man and God. The Reformation did not really thoroughly get rid of that idea, nor did it thoroughly um, manifest the doctrine it confessed about the priesthood of all believers. And in fact, the Reformation... Uh, saddled the church with an understanding of the ministry, with an understanding of the work of ministers, which is still very priestly. And the way this argument is uh, sometimes extended is to say, well, you know, um, the Reformation took place in a period in which people were used to leadership. It was an aristocratic, a monarchical culture. They looked to leaders. They, they were not democratic in their thinking. So it's not surprising that they created a ministry that reflected their society more generally. Their society had strong, authoritative leaders, kings and princes and noblemen. And so they appointed ministers who were strong, powerful um, uh, leaders. Uh, in, in the Dutch language, the ministers called a domini, 
derived from the Latin word dominus, meaning Lord. And of course, that is an appropriate way to speak about a minister. Um, uh, but, but you see, the argument goes that that just shows how the, the Reformation really had a cultural notion of ministry as strong, authoritative leader who does everything. But we live in a new world. We live in a world that is more democratic in its outlook. And in this democratic world, we will be able to better understand the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And we'll be able to read the scripture in a new way. And we'll be able to uh, uh, turn to a verse like 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. And, and these new voices say, now, now look at the picture of Christian worship that you have there in 1 Corinthians 14.26. It's a picture of many people participating in the leadership of worship. And uh, if you don't have that manifold leadership, you really aren't expressing the priesthood of all believers and you're not uh, really following the Bible. Paul commends the Corinthians that when they come together, uh, one has a tongue, one has a prophecy, one has a psalm, uh, one has a prayer. That's, that's a good thing. And so in these more democratic times, we can understand this verse better and we can see that the minister shouldn't run the whole show in worship. And that leads then to the challenge that somehow the whole way Reformed churches have been set up for the last three or four hundred years is wrong. It's a big ministerial power grab. Uh, you need a Marxist interpretation of these things. And sometimes I think we're left sort of reeling and, and raising the question, what ought to be the level of participation of the people in the, in the worship service? What should the minister do? What can other people do? And, and that's a fair question. The fact that we've always done it one way is not a justification for doing it that way. And so we come to this question of leadership. What is the role of the minister? Uh, what can non-ministers do, particularly in the public worship of God? And I was uh, struck uh, a while back thinking about this. I read a, a little news report a couple of years ago uh, about some difficulties in the churches, in the Christian Reformed churches in Orange City, Iowa. And there was a good deal of tension both within certain congregations and between uh, uh, two congregations. And um, uh, one of the ministers... Uh, was quoted in uh, Orange City as saying, maybe if all the ministers in Orange City left for a while, all the problems would be solved. Uh, and that uh, is sometimes a, uh, a sort of tacit uh, uh, notion that spreads, that the source of problems are the ministers. Uh, the people could actually work them, up, work them out better without the ministers. Uh, who needs them? After all, there won't be any ministers in heaven. <laughs> Well, we hope the ministers will get to heaven, but we won't, actually, we won't actually need ministers in heaven, you see. And um, then I was reading, just a few days after I read that news report, I read uh, the report in the uh, 
San Diego Union that the organist of the First Presbyterian Church of San Diego had, been, uh, had resigned because the session of the church had adopted a resolution saying that practicing homosexuals could not be hired by the church. And this led to quite a controversy in the congregation. And a certain group within the congregation organized themselves to force the session to rehire the organist. And the leader of this group said, we are trying to find out where the majority is, what the people within the pews want. When the majority is found, the church leaders should take action along those lines. Now, this is democracy with a vengeance, and I would suggest something of a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. But this, you see, is the way uh, a, a democratic world thinks. The majority is right. That's in the Bible somewhere, isn't it? The majority is right, and so find out what the majority think, and that's what the leaders need to do. Uh, the leaders are not really leaders. The leaders are followers on this model. And uh, the, the leading uh, takes place through polling. Uh, we have political leaders like that now who have no opinions until the poll comes out and whose opinions change as quickly as the polls do. And that's part of what's wrong with the republic, but that's political, and I already said we shouldn't get into those sorts of opinions. Um, but, but here is part of the problem, you see, uh, the very practical problem of what is the role of the minister in relationship to the power of the people. And, and the more theological question, if you will, what does the Bible say the minister's office and responsibility is, particularly in the matter of the leading of public worship? And, and we need to see that as a, as a very real problem. It, it's not just a problem caused by troublemakers. It's a very honest inquiry that is raised by very sincere people. And I was intrigued that um, uh, a few years ago, the, um, the General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church appointed a study committee on the role of leadership, on, on who should provide worship leadership in the public worship of God. And I don't know if you all uh, remember that. Uh, we Christian Reform types take types take study committees very seriously. Um, maybe Orthodox Presbyterians um, are, are a little quicker not to uh, hang on every word of the General Assembly. Um, but that committee reported, you may remember, in 1991, and it was a great moment in Orthodox Presbyterian history, in my judgment. It was a five-member committee, and there was a majority report and two minority reports. <laughs> Isn't that great? I, I thought that was just great. What it, what it manifests, I think, is that this is, a, is quite a difficult issue. Uh, it's, it's an issue that uh, is not easily or immediately solved. And um, uh, we have to realize that. Now, the, the three opinions uh, in these three op uh, reports were um, one minority report, um, as, as I remember, one minority report, um, well, 
children. One, one minority report um, articulated what we might call the traditional reform point of view. And that minority report said, only the minister may lead in public acts of worship. Uh, that was clearly the, the dominant historic reformed practice in both the continental reformed and <clears throat> in British Presbyterian churches. Uh, <clears throat> that is to say, in all the public acts of worship, the minister leads. He is the only, if you will, solo voice in the public worship of God. Uh, the other minority report, again, if I've got the majority and minority straight in my mind, the other minority report said, both the minister and the ruling elders may take leadership in public worship. So that, for example, uh, a ruling elder could lead in prayer, for example, in the public worship. That was another point of view. Uh, the majority report, as I say, if I remember right, said um, no leadership in worship can be more broadly manifested than that. And it is possible even for people who do not hold the office either of teaching elder or ruling elder to take leadership roles uh, in the church. <coughs> now, I, I report that simply to say that even in <coughs> as theologically homogeneous a community as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Even in a community where there is such a, uh, a common appreciation of the importance of the Reformed heritage and a strong common commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture, even there this question is difficult to answer. And so um, <clears throat> um, I, I don't pretend that there is a quick fix to answer this, but I do have an opinion. <laughs> and it's right. <laughs> and I'm glad to share it. But that opinion, I think, um, comes out not just of a single Bible verse, ultimately, but it comes profoundly out of our understanding of theology, and particularly the theology of office in the church. Uh, we are all agreed, I think, that uh, in fact our theology teaches the priesthood of all believers. Uh, but what does the priesthood of all believers actually mean? Um, when you go back and look at Luther's writing on the priesthood of all believers, what he meant was that we can pray for one another. We don't need a priest to pray for us. We can pray for one another. We can intercede for one another. We can help one another. Sometimes the priesthood of all believers is, um, is put forward as a doctrine that says, I don't need a priest to go to God. I can go to God all on my own. Well, there is some truth to that. We can pray directly to God through the merits of Jesus Christ. But the actual doctrine of the priesthood of all believers as articulated in the Reformation was much more about us caring for one another than just being free on our own to go to God. And uh, whether we lead in worship or not, we are able to exercise that priesthood of praying for one another, of being concerned for one another, caring for one another, of upholding one another before the throne of grace. But we also, at the same time that we need a doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, we need a doctrine of the ministry. And um, it, it, it always uh, strikes me anew as very impressive that when Paul in Ephesians 4 celebrates 
the ascension of Christ, the glorious victory of Christ, his, his triumph over his enemies, his exaltation in heaven, and then the, the wonderful declaration that he gives gifts to his church, that what immediately comes to Paul's mind in terms of gifts to the church... Thank you. This is clearly not communion wine. It's yellow. Um, whatever. Um, there's the OP attitude. Just whatever, you know. It's wet. Yeah. That was the third minority report. But but what is so impressive there in Ephesians four is is that. When Paul thinks of the glorified Christ and the many gifts that he, he, he bestows upon his church, the first gift that comes to mind is the gift of office in the church, the gift of leadership in the church. He gave that some should be apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers. Uh, th- this, is, this is a wonderful blessing upon the church in, uh, in Paul's mind. This is not priestcraft. This is not a tyrannical binding of the people under the authority of priests, but this is leadership, this is office, this is direction, this is responsibility, and it is responsibility that the people of God need. Uh, We continue, even in the New Covenant, as people baptized in the Spirit, to be sheep who can wander astray. And Christ, in His mercy, has appointed shepherds for the flock. Uh, shepherds also can go astray shepherds aren't infallible but in the divine economy in the structure of the new covenant uh, Christ has determined that we need leaders and he manifests that by the gifts that he gives to the church Paul reinforces that uh, wherever Paul went we read in uh, Acts 14 and established new congregations he appointed elders in those churches Uh, from the beginning churches need leadership called and appointed by Christ And that's uh, an essential aspect of our theology of ministry. Ministers in the deepest and most profound sense are called and installed by Christ. They are not servants of the congregation in the first place. They are in the first place servants of Christ. And it's in that sense that we say that their office is prophetic. Um, uh, It is analogous to the office of the prophets who were called by God, empowered by God, and spoke to the people words that the people often didn't want to hear. The prophets, the true prophets, were not in the business of being people pleasers. They were in the business of speaking the word of the Lord. And um, that's what makes ministry today so very difficult. Um, It's part of the excitement of American religion and part of the curse of American religion that ministers are so dependent on the people. Uh, That was not true for centuries and centuries of of the history of Christianity. For centuries and centuries, the ministers were paid by the state. They were not dependent on the people for their salaries. And in a certain way, that gave them a certain liberty. Now, I'm not defending that system because it had its own problems. But one of the interesting books written on the history of American Christianity is a book about what happened in the 18th century called The Triumph of the Laity. Up until about the middle of the 18th century, even in America, ministers were paid by the state. And people believed that they needed to go to their nearest neighboring church. This was particularly true in New England. 
You didn't go to just any church that you chose. What gives you a right to choose the church? You're the laity. You're not smart enough to choose a church for yourself. Now, now that's almost a staggering notion for us. And you might think for a minute, where would you go to church if you went to the nearest building? It may not be a very happy, uh, might not be a very happy outcome. It's not too bad for me. I'd be a Missouri Synod Lutheran. But, um, um, uh, but there was this parish mentality, you see. You go to the, the nearest church. And, and the minister preaches what he thinks the people need to hear. And the, the right response of the people was, uh, I guess I needed that sermon. It doesn't strike me as right, but nonetheless, he's the minister. He knows better than I do. That is not a common reaction in churches today. If we don't agree with the minister, the minister's an idiot. <laughs> now, we're, we're reformed enough, we wouldn't quite put it that way, but... Um, <laughs> Do we want a personal testimony time? <laughs> but you see, there's been a triumph of the lady. The lady now pay the minister, and in the, um, uh, in the economy of this world, that communicates the notion that uh, he serves us, he's our employee, and if he doesn't do the job we think he ought to do, out he goes. And Presbyteries struggle to try to protect the minister to some extent against that attitude. It's a, no, 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 wait a minute. He's called. He can only be removed uh, by, by proper procedures. He isn't just the employee. But even in reformed circles, those attitudes seep in and, uh, uh, and, and very much uh, color the way we think about the ministry and the minister and the, and the life of the church. And... Um, we need to be constantly working at a theology of the ministry that rejoices in the fact that Christ is the only head of the church. The congregation is not the head of the church. And the elders are not representatives of the congregation. They are representatives of Christ. And the congregation, because they are Christ's people, have a role in calling the minister and the elders, but their role is to try to determine the will of Christ. And that's why uh, the Belgic Confession rather wonderfully says, I think, uh, there is only one bishop in the church, Jesus Christ. He's the only one in charge. And our whole life, our whole set of practices is an effort to work out the will of Christ as revealed in his, will, in his word. Uh, now, in the Belgic Confession, one of the, one of the great strengths of the Belgic Confession, for those of you uh, uh, not familiar with it, um, one of the great strengths of the Belgic Confession is its um, rather detailed and extensive statements about uh, the, um, the church. Uh, and in the uh, articles in the Belgic Confession, beginning around Article 27 or so, um, there are a whole series of statements about the church and about the ministry. And one of the uh, uh, most interesting statements is that the ministers are to preach sound doctrine and so to preserve true religion among us. And as I read that, I'm always struck by that again. Do we really believe that? Uh, that, that the work of the ministry is so important that the very survival of true religion among us depends upon the ministry. You see how much that stands at odds with this opinion voiced in Orange City, Iowa. Uh, maybe the problems would all just get solved if the ministers left. No. In the economy of God, 
the ministers are crucial to maintaining true religion. Now, the reason that someone comes up with the idea, maybe all the, um, the problems would be solved if the ministers left, is that the great problem congregations face is when ministers say different things. When the ministry all speaks with a single voice, they can still have a fair level of influence and authority amongst the people. But the great quandary the people of God face is when you have some ministers saying one thing and other ministers saying another. That I, I have seen as, as one of the greatest problems in the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, Christian Reformed people have been taught historically to be very respectful of the ministry, to look to the ministry for leadership. And now when the ministry itself is divided, one group of ministers saying, um, this is true, and the others saying, no, just the opposite is true. Many people are left saying, what are we to do? And, it, and it's a very sad thing. But, beloved, it has always been so. We must not slip into thinking our problems are historically unique. Uh, the only thing we learn from church history is that we never learn anything from church history except that all the problems keep recycling. Uh, you can go back at least, at least to Moses and Korah and say there were two factions, two groups of ministers, and the part of the responsibility of the people of God is to figure out who speaks for God. Not always easy. Well, in the case of Moses and Korah, it got easier. Um, <laughs> but it's not always easy to know who speaks for God. Uh, Israel was troubled with that problem, wasn't it? True prophets and false prophets, both saying, thus saith the Lord. Israel had to figure out who spoke for God. The church in the earliest days was troubled that, by that, wasn't it? True, pro true apostles and false apostles. Somebody had to decide whether, uh, whether Paul or the Judaizers was right. The, the congregations had to, to, to evaluate that. And uh, that's why in his uh, great mercy, the Lord has given us a written word. And what the scriptures testify in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant was that the responsibility of the people of God was to look to the written word and say, who speaks for God? Who agrees with the written word? That's why, of course, the New Covenant is so full, the New Testament is so full of quotations from the Old Testament because the apostles themselves knew their responsibility to quote from the Old Testament to verify what they were saying. Jesus himself felt that responsibility, didn't he? He was Son of God come in the flesh and yet to help the people of God know that what he said was true. He not only performed miracles, but he quoted from the Old Testament scriptures so that they might know that these things were true. As you know, the Bereans were called noble because when the Apostle Paul preached, they went back to the Scripture to see if these things were true. The Apostle Paul did not say to the Bereans, what's the matter with you people? Don't you know I'm the Apostle Paul? You don't need to read your Bibles, just listen to me. Now, he would almost have had a right as an Apostle to say that. But he never would have said it because he knew that what he taught was validated by the Scripture and he rejoiced in the eagerness of the people of God to study the Scripture and to be sure that these things were true. 
And so um, when we face difficulty, when we face disagreement, uh, we need to remember, first of all, that it has been almost always so for the people of God. Uh, Times of peace in the church are relatively rare in the history of the church. And we have to remember that although these times are difficult, they can also be spiritually profitable as we are driven back to the Word to study it. And so it is with a theology of leadership in worship. Uh, As we are challenged, who should lead in worship? Um, We ought to go back to the Word and ask, what does the Word tell us? What does the Word teach? And and this is an important enterprise. I I know a Presbyterian church uh, in the Chicago area um, where the pastor decided that there ought to be a worship team to plan the worship services and to lead the worship except for the preaching. He would do the preaching. Now, this is quite a a sound Reformed fellow. He uh, um, is is sound in his theology. He's very well-intentioned. And he, he planted a church that has flourished in a variety of ways. And he said to himself, you know, we have lots of young professional couples in our congregation. They have great responsibility in their uh, work week. Why not express the priesthood of all believers and let them take responsibility for planning and leading in worship? These are good Christian people. And uh, at first glance, that, that might seem to be a, a, sensible, um, a sensible way of proceeding. Uh, soon it was a woman who was the chairman of the worship committee. And she came to lead a good deal of the public worship as chairman of the worship committee. And people said, well, it's all right, because, uh, you know, uh, even the majority of the OP uh, uh, study committee said, uh, uh, you don't have to be a minister or an elder to, lead, uh, to take some leadership role in worship. So, so maybe that's okay. Uh, and then uh, a few years down the road, uh, some of these women who had been active in leading worship came and said to the pastor, now, why exactly can't we be elders? If we can take all the responsibility of planning worship, which is, after all, one of the very most important things the church does, and if we can actually lead the worship, why can't we be elders? And there rose up a a kind of revolt in the congregation. I think they've worked it through now. But you see, sometimes um, the laity are better able to see the interconnections of things than some abstract theologies are. If women can plan and lead worship, why can't they be elders? I mean, what more important things do elders have to do on one level than oversee the worship of God? And so we're brought back to this question. You see, what, what is our worship to be like? How is it to be led? And uh, what are the scriptures saying about these things? How do the scriptures uh, direct us? And uh, that brings us back, I think, to 1 Corinthians 14. And um, lest you be any, in any suspense where I personally stand... Um, I agree with the OP minority um, that says only the minister should lead in public worship. Now, uh, you don't have to agree with me and we can still be friends, but um, uh, so that you'll know the end from the beginning, that's something Calvinists always want to do, um, uh, you'll know how I'm approaching uh, this subject. 
Now, how should we read this uh, important verse, 1 Corinthians 14, 26? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a tongue of instruction, a revelation, uh, a, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Well, of course, um, there are many people uh, upstairs who will tell you uh, how this verse should be read. Uh, this is a, uh, a Pentecostal verse, if there ever was one. And uh, obviously what the Apostle means is that uh, worship is pretty much a free-for-all. And that everybody ought to be able to get involved. That everybody uh, who has the Spirit ought to uh, uh, say a word. And uh, it'll be a fine old time. But, you know, when we, when we step back a minute and ask and reflect on the context uh, of this uh, passage, uh, we immediately see that there, there are some problems that, that suggest that perhaps the meaning of this text is not quite as obvious as our Pentecostal friends would tell us. Now, I've been to um, some Pentecostal churches that are huge, do they really want to read this text to mean, as it says literally, when you come together, each one has a hymn? Are, are they really going to have a service where each of the 7,000 people or whoever it is uh, has his 15 seconds of fame, uh, of leadership? I read, I read one commentator who said, I guess the Corinthian church must have been very small so that each one could, could be a leader. But I don't think there's any indication that the Corinthian church was particularly small. So immediately we have, we have some um, questions about whether we're reading this text correctly. And then as we read a little more widely in this text, Paul says very clearly, not everyone is to speak at once. I, I think some of our Pentecostal uh, friends don't, uh, appreciate the full force of that um, text. Um, but, but Paul clearly does not have in mind that we'll each be able to, uh, uh, to speak just by all talking at once. He, he, he's very adamant, he's very clear in 1 Corinthians 14 that uh, one is to speak at a time. God is not a God of confusion. It will not be edifying for the people of God if everybody talks at once. One at a time, Paul says. Edification is what is the chief end, that we will all be built up in the faith. That's what Paul has in mind here. So a raucous, freewheeling, democratic assembly, again, is not, I think, what Paul is talking about. Again, that's reading a modern world, an abstract modern world, back into the specifics of this text in a way that I don't think it's present at all. Nevertheless, what, what does Paul mean? Well, I think in order to understand what Paul means, uh, we need to go back and look at uh, the broader context here of uh, what he's saying. And that means we have to understand that the unit of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is one unit of apostolic instruction. As far back as about chapter 7, Paul seems to be uh, taking up a series of questions that the Corinthians have posed to him. Um, this is the uh, ancient uh, question and answer session. And they apparently had written some questions to Paul, and Paul now is sort of taking them one after another, and you, you can tell 
that uh, he's on to a new topic uh, when the chapter begins, now about, as it does in 1 Corinthians 12.1. Now concerning, now about. And uh, in the NIV at least it reads, now about spiritual gifts. Uh, the word gifts, as you may know, doesn't appear in the Greek, and it would be better to translate this probably, now about spiritual things, now about spiritual matters. They had obviously asked him a question related to uh, spiritual matters, and it's not entirely bad to translate it spiritual gifts here, because the question was about gifts of the Spirit, and um, it appears it was particularly about tongues, because uh, Paul seems to keep coming back to the issue of tongues as he, as he answers the question. And so maybe they had asked him, what about tongues? How ought they to be used? What do they mean for us? And what Paul seems to be doing in 1 Corinthians 12-14 through 14 is saying, in order to understand tongues, you have to understand the ministry of the Spirit a little more broadly. And let me put the issue of tongues then into a context for you. And uh, out of that context, uh, you'll come to understand um, what uh, tongues is all about. And it seems to me that the, the summary of what he's saying is to be found in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 4 through 7. And he says there, uh, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That seems to me Paul's kind of orienting statement for these three chapters. And, and one point he wants to make is, that uh, everything that happens from God is from God. And so whatever differences there are amongst us, um, we have to remember that the blessings of gifts and difference comes from the same God. So differences amongst us in terms of the way the Spirit is working in each one of us mustn't lead to division and separateness, but must lead to the realization that all of these things come from the one God whom we all know, and leads to the common good for all of us. So that diversity mustn't be seen as fragmenting us or leading us to, to think we serve different gods. No, this diversity that we experience comes from the one God and must lead to the common good. That's the framework, if you will, in which um, Paul wants to discuss these spiritual matters. When you discuss spiritual matters, remember they all come from God and they all need to be leading to the common good. And he seems to want to say, in my discussion, now I'm, I'm the only one who has seen this in this text, which probably means I'm wrong. Uh, so I warn you at the outset. Um, but I, I really am right. Um, it seems to me that this material then is structured in three groups. First he talks about the different kinds of gifts. And then he talks about the different kinds of service. And then he talks about the different uh, kinds of working. 
It seems to be, if you keep those categories in mind, that really is how he groups the material that he talks about. And so it seems to me, at least, that he talks about different kinds of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 11. And then he talks about different kinds of um, service in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, 13. And then he talks about the different kinds of working in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 40. And I think structurally that contention is supported not only by his use of those words in those sections, but um, he seems to begin each section with a summary of the Spirit's gifts, so in, uh, or, or of the Spirit's work. So in, in the first section... He gives a summary of what those gifts of the Spirit are. Look at uh, 12, 8 through 10. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing uh, by the one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still to another the interpretation of tongues. These are, these are the gifts of the Spirit that he summarizes in a list. Uh, similarly, it seems to me he then has a, um, a summary list uh, about um, uh, ministries in 12.28, where he says, And in the church God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those uh, uh, able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. So there are now some of the ministries uh, that indeed overlap the gifts but are uh, given some separate consideration by Paul, culminating, of course, in the great chapter on love where he says, in effect, what has to guide all of our ministry is love. And that whatever other gifts of the Spirit you have, if you don't have love from the Spirit, you really don't have anything. Because what Paul is always coming back to is that point, it's all got to serve the common good. It's got, to, it's got to affect the unity and well-being of the congregation. It can't be divisive. And then when he comes to the third point, workings, the workings out of the Spirit, then I think that's what we have in verse uh, 26 of chapter 14. What then shall we say, brothers? When we come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. There's another kind of summary of uh, the Spirit's outworking of the gifts and the ministries. So we have three sections in which Paul, uh, to be sure, sees an overlap, but in which he says, you know, whatever gifts they are, they come from the Spirit for the common good. Whatever ministries they are, they come from the Spirit for the common good. Whatever workings they are, they come from the Spirit for the common good. That's got to be kept in mind. And it's all got to be for the edification of the church. Now, in each of these lists, in each of these summaries that he gives, each of these three, is Paul talking about extraordinary works of the Spirit or is he talking about ordinary works of the Spirit? You know, that classic and I think very helpful distinction of Reformed theology between the ordinary and the extraordinary. The special and temporary work of the Spirit at the foundation of the church as opposed to the continuing and permanent work of the Spirit through the ordinary offices of the church. 
Now, some have said, well, you look at those lists, obviously some of them are extraordinary. You look at miracles, you look at tongues, you look at prophecy, you look at the apostleship. Clearly, those are extraordinary things. But then there are other things. There's teaching, and there's knowledge, and there's wisdom. Uh, Aren't those ordinary things? Isn't this a mixed list? And what I would suggest is that, no, this is not a mixed list. Now, if you want to disagree with me, this is the key point where my argument may be weak. Um, It's not, but uh, if you don't think clearly, you might think so. Um, This is the point where the argument may be weak. Um, And uh, all I can say is that Gordon Fee, in his big commentary on 1 Corinthians, agrees with me. Um, Now, Gordon Fee is a Pentecostal, so whether that's the best authority to cite uh, is, is another question. But it seems to me that each of the elements on this list is, in fact, an extraordinary work. Let's look at that list that particularly interests us, 1 Corinthians 14.26. When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, I think we probably all agree that a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation is an extraordinary work of the Spirit. But what about a hymn or a word of instruction? Well, a word of instruction clearly can be ordinary, but it could also be extraordinary by a direct inspiration of the Spirit. What about a hymn? Actually, the word in Greek there is psalmos, should be translated as psalm. What's, what's your picture of this Corinthian congregation? Is Paul saying, now when each, of, each one of you comes together, some of you will have a prophetic word, and the rest of you should have a number. <laughs> Let's sing Psalm 84. <laughs> now that's possible, but I don't think it's very likely. I think when when uh, the reference here is to each of you having a hymn, I think it's a hymn that's directly inspired by the Spirit as they gather. It's a word of instruction that's directly inspired by the Spirit as they gather. It's a revelation directly inspired by the Spirit. These are chapters on spiritual things. These are chapters on the ministrations of the Spirit in in the community. And so my argument is that... um, um, What Paul is talking about is extraordinary gifts in the life of the church. And so, therefore, when he says, when you come together, each of you has, I don't think he's saying every one of you now needs to participate. This needs to be a group uh, activity where everybody does his own thing. I think what he's saying is, each of you who has the Spirit should lead with your hymn, should lead with your revelation, should lead with your tongue, should lead with your interpretation. This is about spiritual things. It's each of you who has the Spirit. Now, the reason I'm belaboring this point and making you all even more eager for lunch than you were is that my contention is that the leadership Paul is talking about here is not a leadership of the people. It is not a priesthood of all believers. It is not just democracy in action. It is a leadership of the Spirit-appointed authorities in the congregation. It is the leadership of those who have been endued with the Spirit to lead the congregation 
with a hymn, with a revelation, with a tongue, with a word of wisdom. And the reason I think this is important is because I think it reinforces the point that from the beginning, Christian leadership in worship was leadership of those called by the Spirit to leadership. It was not a free-for-all. It was not a democracy. It was not everybody choosing their favorite number. It was leadership exercised by those in this context who were extraordinarily called to leadership by the Spirit. Now, some people have said, well, if if leadership and office and authority is so important, why doesn't Paul here talk about the ordinary leadership of the church? Didn't Corinth have elders? Why doesn't he talk about the elders here? Well, I think the answer is that the problem he's addressing is the problem in the church concerning those spiritual things. Problems that apparently the elders couldn't solve. Perhaps the elders were divided amongst themselves. And my argument is that in the church, in those earliest days, you had two two roles of leadership, two dimensions of leadership. There were the extraordinary leaders, like the apostles and prophets, called to leadership by the direct work of the Spirit and immediately inspired by the Spirit, the extraordinary leadership of the church, and there was the ordinary leadership of the church, that which would go on and continue. You can say, well, doesn't that then make these chapters just irrelevant for us because they're Paul's instruction to a situation we don't face anymore. The extraordinary has passed away. No, it's very relevant because we still have the Spirit. We still have ordinary gifts. We still have the need for edification. So what Paul says about the extraordinary situation still has very much application to our ordinary situation today. Is that a sign I need to stop? I'm willing but I have just a little more I want to say. Preacher always has just a little more than he needs to say. And so my argument is that far from teaching that worship is a free-for-all where anybody can lead, that this reinforces our historic reformed notion that leadership must be the leadership established by the Spirit, whether through extraordinary means or through the ordinary means of office. And this conclusion leads me then to say, it is not a free-for-all in worship. It's not everybody doing their own thing. It's not everybody being able to use their uh, their own insights and gifts. It is leadership that Christ has called and Christ has installed in the church. And that that's, again, I would argue, part of the freedom that is ours in the regulative principle. It is the freedom not to be led by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Now, we occasionally think that about ministers, but it's less true, we hope, of ministers. Um, it, is, it is people who have been prepared by training and teaching to lead in worship. It is people that have been examined by the church and approved by the church. It is people that have been set apart by ordination for the work of leading the church in its worship. This is not priestcraft. This is the order, I believe, that Christ has established in his church and it is what promotes good order and peace in the church. And that's Paul's great conclusion of this 14th chapter, isn't it? Let everything be done decently and in order. 
And we sometimes joke about that. That's the only concern we reform folk have, is that everything be done decently and in order. And we overdo that. Well, I'm not so sure we overdo that. That is, after all, the great conclusion the apostle reaches, isn't it? It's not just one little bit of advice stuck in the middle of this. This is what it all leads to. Let all be done decently and in order. And the decent and orderly way to do things is that the church calls a minister. And what is he called to do? He's to be a minister of the Word and sacraments. He's to be our leader in worship. He's to be our spokesman to God when we pray. And he's to be God's spokesman to us when he preaches. That's the orderly way of proceeding. That's the decent way to proceed. It's the way that flows out of our theology of ministry. Well, you're all looking hungry and some skeptical, so I will stop. Uh, But I I think we need to be renewed in a confidence that a a clear argument can be made from Scripture and our Reformed uh, faith for the leadership of the minister in worship. That this is not just a tyranny that the minister exercises, but that it is the freedom that we enjoy that one who is trained, one who is approved, one who is called by the church has been set aside because we have confidence in him to lead us in our worship, that he might speak for God to us and that he might speak for us to God. Uh, We'll have questions sometime, but not now. Well, um, you know, my adrenaline is pumping, but you're all worn out. So um, uh, it's up to you. Anybody who needs to leave should go. If anybody has a quick question, I'd be glad to try to answer it. Yes. Okay, that's a very good question. I didn't really have time to get into that. I, I do try to make that argument in another place. Oh, the question is, um, uh, how, how should we understand the relationship of the work of the elders to the work of the ministry? How do, how do they relate to each other, particularly in terms of the leadership of worship? And the very brief answer, probably too brief, is that um, in the Reformed tradition, we've had a big debate as to whether ministers and elders are separate offices or whether they're two aspects of the same office. Um, In a sense, I don't think it matters which side of that debate you're on for what I'm arguing here. Even if you think there's only one office of the eldership with two aspects, the teaching office and the ruling office, uh, even even with that distinction, which I think is a clear distinction in Paul's pastoral letters, um, the, the very language we have historically used, I think, points to what some elders are supposed to do. What some elders are supposed to do is to rule. That's the great work of ruling elders. Now, in order to be able to rule, they have to have some ability to teach. I mean, they have to have enough smarts to be able to to rule in terms of distinguishing truth from error. But I think the very language that we use to say teaching elders, say some elders are those set aside to be up front. Now, I wouldn't make a big deal of it. I don't don't walk out when ruling elders lead part of the worship service. You know, um, uh, but... I think that very language points us that the function of ruling elders is to be the body to which we appal uh, when, when there is, is concern. If, 
if the teaching elder leads in worship and says something we, we think is unbiblical, then what do we do? Well, obviously we leave the church. Uh, um, no, what we do is we go to the elders and we say, now you are, you are set aside to rule over this congregation and to stand as supervisors of the work of the minister. The teaching elder who has been set aside publicly to lead us has done something that seems to me as a, as a member of the church unbiblical and I come to you for a judgment. You see, that seems to me the function of the ruling elders as distinct from the function of the teaching elders. Um, again, I, I don't think it, it's any great deformation of our worship if a ruling elder leads in prayer publicly. Uh, he has been called, he has been set aside, he has uh, gifts for teaching if he's uh, rightly called. But, but I, I do think it begins to confuse the situation where... Um, I think our theology and the scripture leads us to the notion that the teaching elder should be the one who speaks um, for the congregation to God. Um, and in my own experience, ruling elders don't usually do the job very well. But that's pragmatic, and we would never descend into a, a pragmatic argument. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes, sir. Um, you used the comparison of the extraordinary and the ordinary. A few years ago, there was a movie, uh, Don't raise the bridge, lower the river. It may just be semantics. But if we look at what you're calling the ordinary, the picking of the hymn, really is extraordinary if done under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and a heart full of God, then none of it is ordinary. It is all extraordinary. Uh, that's true in a sense, and it's important to... Oh. Uh, well, the, the question is, uh, isn't in some sense all of the work of the Spirit amongst us extraordinary work? Uh, and, uh, and I would say yes, from a, from a certain sense that's true. Um, but I would argue um, that when um, Paul says here, uh, let each of one, one of you have a hymn, it is a different thing for me to stand up and under the immediate... Um, inspiration of the Spirit have some words in my mind that are hymnic and that the congregation can sing. That is a different kind of work of the Spirit from my saying, I think uh, it, it would be good to sing number 86. Um, and yeah, that, the Spirit is involved with that choice, but I would say not, I, I would not want to say the Spirit has told me we must sing number 86 now. See, that's, that's the kind of difference that I, that I would see there. Uh, uh, and, and I think it's most clear when you look at the office of the apostle. Almost all Christians have agreed the office of apostle does not continue. Whatever we may debate about prophets, the office of the apostle does not continue. And um, that was an extraordinary thing the Spirit did that he does not ordinarily do. Yes. What Last question. Well, I, I don't know what, what your practice is. In, in our church, there's a time of, of hymn singing and choosing numbers uh, before the service officially starts. And I think that's perfectly appropriate. Uh, it's, it's then an informal gathering. Um, and, and again, I, I'm not going to make a big deal if, if in the middle of the public worship you take a time out for, for hymn singing. I, 
uh, you know, I, I, one of the important things we as reformed people have to do is learn to prioritize issues. Not all issues are of exactly the same level of importance. Uh, but I would say it is somewhat better to have that, that informal time of hymn singing um, before the, the regular service begins. And I feel that in part because, uh, at least when I'm leading a service, I pick the songs that we sing with great care and thought to contribute to the movement of the service. So that even the, 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 um, the song of adoration and the song of repentance, perhaps, early in the service, are still in some sense, in my mind, tied in to the theme that I'm going to be trying to develop in the sermon. And therefore, the choosing of, of songs is not a, a random, haphazard sort of thing as I put the official service together, but I'm, I'm trying to accomplish something by the songs that I choose. And that's why I would rather see the more informal um, um, take place before the service, where, yeah, then it's fine for people to gather and choose their favorites and, and spend some time in a kind of spiritual preparation for the worship. Uh, prayer requests, uh, I think, are fine. I, I personally would prefer to see people write down their prayer requests uh, and hand them to the minister before the service uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that it saves time. It can, it can end up being very time-consuming for people to bring their prayer requests so that sometimes you almost don't have time to pray for them. Um, and, and the other thing reflects my weakness um, People I've known for years and know well, when they raise their hand in a group like this, I forget their name. It goes right out of my head. Uh, my wife insists it's because I really don't care. Um, <laughs> and, and I tell her that's not fair. Uh, but um, uh, it, it really is it, sort of embarrassing for the minister when somebody raises their hand and says, would you pray for my sister? She's really sick. And um, you can't remember who that person is. You have no idea who the sister is. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then you say, uh, what was your sister's name? And then they say, well, you married her last week. Uh, 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 now, that's sort of pragmatic again. But uh, I, I, think, I think that whole, uh, that whole uh, business could be better handled if, if you encourage people to write down their prayer requests and give them to the minister. He can then organize them better and uh, put their name on them. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's break for lunch. Thank you.